we're going to start off with Isaiah 1. I went back and forth on choosing this. It's in the lectionary, um, so that was, that was what drew my attention. But there was also another Old Testament passage that we could have chosen today, or the New Testament, or the Gospel. Really, almost anything would have been a lot easier, I think, than this um, to start us off. But I was intrigued by it and drawn to it for a couple of reasons. And the first is that you'll see as we jump into the very, very, very first chapter of Isaiah that he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't ease us into his book, and he doesn't, he doesn't gentle his introduction. It's like right off the bat, he doesn't pull any punches. He just goes after you. And um, there's a reason for that. And that reason is that Israel needed a spiritual checkup. Before he could even start his ministry, actually, all the way in chapter 6 is kind of his calling to ministry. And it would have been really nice if he would have started the book like that. It would have been really peaceful, I think, and gentle, and still not pulling any punches, but it, it probably would have felt better than the way he actually did open it. But um, yeah, Israel, Judah needed a spiritual checkup. They were not in a great place, and he wasn't going to mess around, and God wasn't going to mess around. God wanted his people to come back to him fully and completely. And the funny part is that this was a people who were giving out offerings, and they were following instruction, at least outwardly. So it's, it's a, a differ from what Israel was used to. Israel was used to having long periods of time where they turned away and rebelled from God outwardly and openly. But here, they're outwardly worshiping him, and he's still saying, no, this isn't right. And I think that the church... Uh, in America today, the church anywhere today can take some instruction from this as well. We get into routines in our spiritual life, routines where maybe we continue to, to outwardly worship God. We're all here at church, and I believe that all of us here want to worship God fully and well, but there are times when things get in our way. So I want to take this time as a spiritual checkup, that as we're going through the passages today, I want you to think to yourself, is there something that is distracting me, or is there something that I am expecting, or have I simply gotten into the routine of worship, and I need to maybe spice that routine up? by coming back to God in some way or another. So those are the things I want you to kind of be um, looking at in your own lives as we go through this passage. But the other reason I chose this was because it looks really harsh at first glance, but nothing in Isaiah comes without grace. There are some really powerful passages in Isaiah and some of them are really, really convicting. But there's always a message of hope. And this first chapter is no different. That doesn't mean we can just gloss over the hard parts 
In fact, the uncomfortable parts are what make the hope that much more incredible. So we are going to go through those hard parts of Isaiah, Isaiah today. And I, I mean, I think we should go ahead and let those sit on our hearts. But I want us to also remember that the hope offered by Isaiah is incredibly, incredibly impactful. So without any further delay, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1. We are going to read the very first verse, and then we're going to skip a few. We'll kind of talk about them, but we'll skip a few and start back up at verse 10. So here's Isaiah 1, 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you that you are here now. Lord God, bring us to you, draw us nearer. Speak to us through this word. 
And through the conviction of your Holy Spirit, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's easy for us to jump into a little background first. Um, I think I think jump into a little lectionary background even. There are different seasons that the lectionary is very good at highlighting. And it's very helpful. We go through seasons of new beginnings and we go through seasons of incredible hope. And we go through seasons of kind of wilderness and growth. And this I think is a season of calling us back to the Lord. Because like I said, there are times when we can get a little stagnant and that's nothing new. That's nothing new or unique to us. That's something that Christians and the Jews all throughout history experienced. And so this is a time of calling back. And for Isaiah, that's exactly what it was. Isaiah came at a time of prosperity. But he also uh, ministered through a lot of times in Israel's um, existence. Well, in Judah's existence more specifically. Um, So Isaiah, in the very first chapter, gives us a really good glimpse of what was going on in Judah's history at the time. And it's just a few words. But he mentions four kings right off the bat. So these four kings um, span a lot of Isaiah's, a lot of Judah's history. And that's 50 to 60 years worth of ministry for Isaiah. And in those 50 to 60 years, a lot can happen. In the case of Judah, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, had been split from them for about 200 years. And Judah had had a history of kings coming and going, some good, some bad. At the time of the opening of Isaiah, King Uzziah had been reigning for a long time. It's near the very end of his reign, and Uzziah reigned for about 52 years. And the good news with that is that Uzziah was a fairly faithful king. For the most part, almost all of his kingship was spent devoted to God. And Uzziah took the word of the prophet Zechariah to heart. And so Uzziah's reign really was a healthy, solid reign. And God blessed the country because of that. So here Judah is. They've had a good 50 years or so. That's several decades of just prosperity. But also in Isaiah's reign, we go to King Ahaz, who was the worst king Judah had ever seen. And the land suffers because of it. And of course, you go up back to Hezekiah, who's another good, faithful king. There's this roller coaster of politics happening. And all the while, Israel to the north has fallen to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are a big threatening force in the world and they're taking things over and even though Judah is feeling this prosperity they're also probably feeling the pressure of Assyria that all happens in the first verse just by mentioning these four little kings we get this whole setting 
and it's almost like a summary of what is to come in, in the entire book of Isaiah. And to further that summary is the first chapter. So the first chapter talks about what the problem with Israel is, and it talks about where God wants worship to come from, from his people. And it talks about judgment, and it talks about brokenness and desolation and destruction, but it also talks about great hope. And that's a theme all through the book of Isaiah. It's, it's always there will be judgment, but there will be hope there is hope. And I think the greatest foretelling of what is to come in the book of Isaiah again comes in that first verse simply by Isaiah's name. The name Isaiah means the Lord saves. And that is the greatest summary of the whole book because even with the, the political changes, even with um, the messages of hope and destruction and, and all of these varying underlying messages that Isaiah gives, there's always one consistent theme and that is that the Lord saves. No matter what season of life you are in, no matter what season of life the Israelites are in, the Lord saves. And that is how we open. And that, I think, is why Isaiah probably begins with this really intense chapter. Because this theme is so important, it has to be known. So as I said, chapter one takes place right around the end of King Uzziah's very comfortable reign. And he lived in the fear of God and demonstrated that to the people. So he was a wise and faithful le leader. And um, because of that, God's people also acted in some of the same ways that God had expected them to. I do want to add that in this time, there were a lot of pagan gods. Israel was really the only monothe monotheistic uh, country at all. And so there were a lot of gods, a lot of deities all over, and all of them expected things of their worshipers. There was a price that had to be paid. You give me sacrifices and I won't attack you, or you give me this, and I will give you fertility for your land and children. You give me something, and you will stay my anger. And so these deities would bestow things on the people for a price, and then retreat off to wherever deities retreated, so that they wouldn't have to be near the people. They weren't personal gods. They were demanding gods. They were kind of weak gods, really. And Israel's God seemed to have been demanding the same on surface value. So at the surface, it seemed as though Yahweh, the God of Israel, demanded offerings of his people. In the law that Moses gave, there were offerings demanded for sin offerings. There were offerings demanded for peace. 
there were plenty of offerings demanded. So if you just took a face value reading of the law and you looked at all the demands of the deities in surrounding countries, I think there would be an easy way to just say, yeah, that's what God demands of us, these burnt offerings. But that isn't quite the whole story. Nevertheless, uh, Judah was prospering, and it was easy for, his, for God's people to give these offerings. In fact, our scripture today says they were giving multitudes of offerings. They were heaping these offerings on. They were participating in all the festivals. It was, it was not hard for them because they had plenty to give. They were doing this very, very well, at least outwardly, and going through all of the motions and procedures that seemed to be demanded. But on an inward, personal level, that was never what Yahweh had truly demanded. So there are some problems here, and each of these problems, I think, is also a problem of worship right now, today, in 21st century Christianity. And the first is that they seemed to think their religious rituals would save them from destruction and continue to get them what they desire. And then the second is that Yahweh is a living and relational God. He desires their hearts and not just their rituals. So number one, they think that their rituals will save them and continue getting them what they desire. And their understanding of God is skewed. But I think sometimes all of our understandings are skewed. That's why we worship in groups. That's why God created us for, for community, because we can't understand by ourselves, And that's why God gives us the Holy Spirit. We can't fully comprehend God from our own perspective. We need other perspectives, and we need the Holy Spirit to give us guidance, and we need the Word to give us guidance. Our own personal understanding falls short, and so did the Israelites. So basically, they were trying to make God work for them and fit into their understanding of him, which was based on their worldview and on other gods around them, the pagan gods, the gods of other countries. And so they may have lived in a time of prosperity, but Assyria happened to be a big, big threat. And the Judeans had taken their prosperity to mean that God was blessing them and they had earned God's favor. I will say God was blessing them. They, they were the chosen people of God, and King Uzziah was a faithful king. So there was an element of God's blessing there. But the problem is they believed they had won or earned God's favor by their practices. And so they started to believe also that if they just continued on worshiping the way they did, then God would continue to spare them because they were doing all the things right. In verses 9 and 10, 
They're compared to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So first in 9, we didn't read 9 today, but it says that God's, if it weren't for God's blessing, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And I wonder if there's just a small sigh of relief starting to happen there. They would have become, but they didn't because God's blessing us. So maybe we're a little better than Sodom and Gomorrah. But the very next, very next verse, Isaiah says, you are the rulers of Sodom and you are the people of Gomorrah. In those cities, there was nothing left because of their sinfulness, because of their wickedness, because they had turned from God. So if Judah had thought for even a second that, well, we aren't completely wicked because we bring our offerings, that thought was dashed. You are the rulers of Sodom and you are the people of Gomorrah. Those cities were destroyed. There was nothing left because they were wicked. But think of their perspective. At this point, the people of Jerusalem still seemed to be making it through the day to day. And on the surface, it didn't look as though things had gotten any worse. There were the prosperous people of the city, those political and religious leaders who lived in a prosperous center of their country, and Jerusalem still stood, but they were blinded to the fact that Jerusalem really was crumbling around them. Verse 8 talks about the daughter Zion, which is a reference to Jerusalem. So if Zion were the temple, then Jerusalem was the daughter of Zion. It says that the daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, a hut in a field of melons. It once maybe stood tall and mighty, like a fortress of splendor, but now it's nothing more than a shack or really a hovel. And so they thought they were prospering because they were pleasing God with their offerings, but really they were blinded to everything, the destruction around them and the meaning of worship. They were viewing God and the world around them with a broken perspective. And they thought, if we're doing these rituals that God requires of us, then shouldn't the responsibility now be on God? It should be on God's shoulders to save us from Assyria. It should be on God's shoulders to lift up Jerusalem. It should be on God's shoulders to protect us because we're doing these rituals. And to a degree, I think we struggle with the same mindset today. Sometimes we try to hold God accountable for our own understanding of who he ought to be and to our own standards. So there's this collection of essays by C.S. Lewis. They were published after his death, and they're called God in the Dock. And the title refers to an analog that he had made um, that says that modern humans tend to place God on trial while acting as his judge, instead of allowing ourselves to be judged by him. And I think that really applies, because how many times have we heard people lament the injustices of the world and blame God for them? 
And so many times people insist they can't worship a God who's so cruel to let hunger or disease or poverty exist. And so many times in our life, when things don't go our way, we might be tempted to say, but haven't we been faithful? Or why is God doing this or that? We tend to place the blame for bad things on God. And I think our human tendency is to say, well, if we just take our worship a little more into our own hands, if we pray more faithfully, or if we do this, that, or the other thing, maybe we can change God's mind or convince God to give us the blessings we think we deserve. And then we fail to see God in the full extent of his holiness and grace and perfection when we start to view things in that light. And we start to hold ourselves a little less accountable. So even Christians say, if God wants my worship, then he needs to fit into my picture of a God who is worthy of worship. And we blame him for not living up to our expectations and we put him on trial. Or we could perceive him in an entirely different way. We could think that maybe by doing these rituals and giving these offerings, we're earning grace from him. After all, these were sin offerings that were being criticized specifically in this passage. In verse 12, Yahweh asks his people, who has asked these offerings of you? And the literal answer would be, well, he has. He asked the people to bring sin offerings and sacrifices and to celebrate these festivals. That was in the Torah. That was in the law given to Moses to the people, but never was it for the sake of earning his favor or appeasing him or forcing him to do things or convincing him into forgiving us. We don't need to convince God into forgiving us. The truth is that even though the sacrifice of animals and blood for sin is deeply symbolic, God never needed them from us. There had to be something to offer. There had to be work for us. There had to be a system. And it was something that was very gravely important. And animals and blood were a part of that. And it was something that also made people truly take time and think about the gravity of the condition of human sin in relation to God's holiness. These things were important to us as sinful humans that needed grace. They were meant to make us repent in light of that sin condition. But the repentance was always, always the true intended offering. And God didn't need the animals for sacrifice. He's God. He could have created a different system 
Really, we, we needed it. And if the people were no longer comprehending the significance of repentance in their sacrifice or the significance of their offerings at all, then what was even the point? He didn't need those offerings, so why are they bringing them if they're not repenting? Yahweh is not a false god who can be manipulated through human gifts. Without repentance and true worship, our offerings are an insult to him. And the passage emphasizes that the proof of our repentance is the way that we act justly toward others. So God should not be on trial for injustice. We should. Scriptures have always had God as the judge with us on trial. If we truly repent, we will turn from the ways of our oppression and injustice over others. The question, who instructed you, ought to remind us of the commands toward sacrifice and worship given in the Torah. But then in verse 10, here, the word Torah is used again for law or teaching or instruction. So just as it was God's instruction, Torah, to Moses, that people worship him with offerings and sacrifice in place of their sin, so it is also God's instruction now and always was that our worship first includes repentance and a striving toward righteous, just living. And those are very inseparable parts of the same Torah, the same instruction. So going back to the second problem, Yahweh is a living and relational God. He desires our hearts and not just our rituals. And this is more than just repentance. I told you that this passage was chosen because there's hope ingrained into it. And that hope is that our God is deeply relational and that screams through in this passage. We didn't read verse 2, but verse 2, right after that introduction verse, verse 2 says, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. So before any of the accusations and before this passage comes to to light and before the book really even opens, we're reminded something very personal that God is first our Father. He is other things in this passage and in this book. He's master, he's judge, but first he's revealed as our Father, and that's very personal. It's a bitter pill to swallow when an impersonal deity makes unreasonable demands of us. But this is our heavenly father who knows us, and the demand that he's making is that we know him in return. So the passage is a rebuke for our own good. It's not forced worship for the sake of appeasing an impersonal God. It is a holy heavenly parent saying, this is the best way for you. 
This is the best way for the world. This is the way that's going to bring you peace and wellness, and I want that peace and wellness and wholeness for you. Take verses 5 and 6. Why should you be beaten more? that you revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. Wounds and welts and open sores, they haven't been closed nor bandaged nor soothed with oil. This passage is hard to swallow, but it is a father saying, you are hurting by your own evilness by your own false offerings you are hurting yourself by your own acts of injustice against other people you are hurting yourself by your own refusal to turn back to me you are hurting yourself you are not well and how can you stand much more than this for your own good the best way is to be in relation with God our Father. And then further, in verse 18, Yahweh says, and that's important, Yahweh says, come now and let us settle the matter. Some translations say, let us argue some say, let us reason together. In fact, I think that's probably the best translation, is let us reason together. Come is an imperative, but come now softens it, making it an invitation. It is an invitation to reason together and discuss the charges that Yahweh has made against Jerusalem. There's the possibility of cleansing and the choices that lie before the people. The fact that the invitation to discuss this specifically came from Yahweh gives it this immeasurable weight. To decline Yahweh's invitation would be to miss the possibility of forgiveness that he's offering. Yahweh is a personal God who will enter into conversation with us, who will enter into covenant with us, who will give us a choice to do right and repent so that we can be made well again. Well from the bruises we've given ourselves in the past, from not obeying his word, from not repenting, and well in the future as we make choices that honor him that are righteous. the people of Israel had been worshiping impersonally. They had been neglecting God amidst their rituals. And that was never what he had commanded. I said that a surface reading of the Torah, maybe you could see that all he demanded was sacrifice. But in reality, that was never the case. He had always demanded relational covenant. He had always been a God who personally knew his people. He had always been a God of salvation and a God of justice who demanded righteousness, but who offered grace when righteousness couldn't be 
achieved. In fact, that is why those sin offerings existed. The people were, were sinning deliberately, the people of Israel, and saying, it's okay, because the next time I offer my sin offering, it will be forgiven. That was never the plan for sin offerings. Sin offerings existed because when people were in right covenant with God, they strived for his righteousness, but couldn't measure up. And so the sin offerings existed for the sake of the people to see God's grace embodied. If the people were just using sin offerings so that they could justify sinning more, or if the people were using sin offerings to bribe God into grace, or if the people were using sin offerings to appease a God so that he would continue to protect them from the Assyrians, those were all big, big problems. And it was showing in their life as they, as they heaped injustice onto the oppressed and as they continued to live for themselves and not for God. In some of these things, I think this is where the church struggles today. I think that, I don't think anyone in this church would consciously manipulate God. That's not the right way to look at it. But I do think that there are times in our faith when we think, uh, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to, and God will forgive me. I think that's a mindset that we, we adopt sometimes. And I think sometimes we get so used to doing our rituals, whether it's our daily prayer time, so that while we're sitting in the word, we're also thinking about what happens the rest of the day and making plans and we're not fully concentrating because we're so used to the ritual of daily prayer time or daily Bible reading. Or when we come to church, we're so used to coming to church every week that the songs kind of, we just go through the motions, not all the time, but I think sometimes. So let this be a spiritual wellness check. You know and God knows what impedes you. And for all of us, there is something. Whether it's big or small, there's something that impedes us from better worship. And there's something that impedes us from allowing God to make us well or well-er. Let's use this time as a spiritual wellness check. Ask God what it is that is impeding you and allow him to forgive you in his grace that you haven't earned, that you can't bribe, but that you were given because our God is a good God worthy of our true worship. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we ask that you would just Reveal yourself in our hearts today with no distractions, with no ulterior motives, just you and us. God, show us where we are impeded in our worship and help us to strive for a right relationship with you.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.